We're now approaching a year of living through the COVID-19 pandemic. And while it's affected all of our lives, it's had the most detrimental effects on minority communities. In this upcoming episode, I speak with two women of color working in various sectors of the medical field to share their thoughts on how COVID-19 has highlighted the racial inequity that exists in America today. What's up, you guys? Welcome to episode 14 of Speak Your Mind. My name is Jabron. Thank you all for joining us here today. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the channel for more conversations like this. So I'd like to introduce our guests we have here today. We have Adrian Green and Aaron Burnett. Thank you guys both for joining us. Would you guys introduce yourselves and um, talk a little bit about the work you've done so far? Would you like to go yeah. first, Erin? <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Um, so my name is Erin Burnett. Um, I've recently graduated from Cal State Long Beach with my bachelor's in healthcare administration and a minor in Spanish. Um, and recently I've been doing um, a lot of like healthcare communications work, which basically means that I've been working on like taking the information that like LA County Public Health and, you know, the CDC that they officially release and like converting them like into you know, things that are easily shareable um, in social media. Um, previously, I was working with an organization where they were doing multiple languages. So they were doing like Spanish, Vietnamese, um, Tagalog, um, Chinese. Um, and then I have also been hired as like a call center person. I think that's what they're called. Um, basically scheduling uh, COVID-19 vaccinations. So um, just, you know, working with a lot of knowledge about how COVID-19 has impacted um, our communities and how information is um, really important and like how to best get that information to the right people. Yeah. Well, I'm Adrian. I am a third year medical student. Before starting medical school, I did my master's in, with a concentration in mental health policy. And now in my third year, I'm basically just working on a podcast about medical, um, about medical history called A Medical History in Color. And, you know, just trying to stay involved and tapped into some of the social things that are happening around med school right now. So for myself, I would say that I'm really passionate about policy. I'm really passionate right now about vaccination. I've been doing a lot of vaccination or COVID-19 vaccination volunteering through our medical center. And yeah, healthcare parity. Yeah. Well, like I said to you guys earlier, I think you guys are perfect for this, for this episode, both um, well-educated in this, this subject. So let's just get into the conversation with talking about, um, so what are the main ways that COVID-19 has disproportionately affected minority communities and what are the main reasons for this? Well, yeah. I would start first and foremost, like, so I know one thing with COVID-19 when we're talking about a lot of these health disparities, it's like, these are health disparities that have already been there foundationally. It's basically like you had this really bad foundation for a house and then had someone basically come in and take like a wrecking ball to the already like shoddy foundation of the house, right? So um, black people, for instance, like you're talking about communities that have less access to healthcare, um, that usually receive a lot of their primary care services through the emergency department rather than having their own ECP and um, or primary care provider. I shouldn't use the, um, the abbreviation. Yeah, and have like higher cardiovascular mortality, diabetes, you know. Right. And so uh, I know you guys might not have like statistics off the top of your head, but if we were to talk about a couple of the, the ways that we see it, um, like showing that it's more disproportionately affected, is it is the infection rates high, like significantly higher? 
is unemployment rates higher? And does part of that have to do is just like a lot of these individuals in these minority communities are essential workers that are forced to kind of have to provide for family, for their family and stuff, right? Yeah, so it's a couple of things. Like the first thing that you mentioned, for instance, right? Like minority communities are more likely to be affected by COVID-19. Like you said, I can't think of the percentage off the top of my head. I want to say somewhere around 40% or so, but 40% of the people who are having like the worst mortality from COVID-19 are Hispanic patients, for instance, Hispanic people. I think one of the first people they actually vaccinated in the U.S. was a Hispanic nurse, and that was because she wanted to make sure that her community could see her getting vaccinated because they had been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. And she's like, okay, you guys need to see, like, this is actually one way that we can nip that in the bud. Even when you're talking about um, Black, the Black community, you're talking about places like in Michigan where you have this very small percentage of the population that's actually made of Black people but they are the people who are making up the majority of patients who are coming in to the emergency room, ending up on ventilators and ending up infected with COVID-19. And some of that is an issue of housing, right? But some of it, like I said, is really just um, what you see in a pandemic is a kind of doubling down on systemic inequalities that existed before the pandemic. So um, if one thing I had to mention that to kind of move the conversation away from just like plain, like regular, like healthcare, for instance, right? Like one thing that you mentioned that I think is really important to point out, point out is that most of our essential workers are minority communities, like not just talking about frontline healthcare workers, like nursing and um, like nurses or people who are respiratory, um, respiratory therapists or anything like that. Like I would say for nurses around 27% of them are made up of black, um, are black. And then there is about 18% of them that are Hispanic or whatever. And those, they are overrepresented in that number of people compared to their actual number in the population. But it's not just those people when you're talking about essential workers, you're talking about your postal workers, you're talking about the people who are delivering your Uber Eats and your DoorDash and your Grubhub (laughs) services that people have been taking um, more advantage of, obviously, since we've been having to stay at home a little bit more this year. There's there's just a lot of ways that minority people end up being the front line as far as the people responding to this pandemic, but also the people who are more likely to come into contact with this virus, given that they don't have the luxury of just being able to stay home. Right. And I think that's why it's important is of, of you know, not taking these things for granted, because a lot of these individuals are, are in situations where they're forced to have to work, if that makes sense. And so... Um, and I think we don't always appreciate the essential workers that are actually out here um, and putting their lives and their families' lives at risk for um, because they're, you know, they're forced to. So um, and so, Adrian, you touched on it a little bit. But so we've seen how COVID has had a more dramatic effect on these uh, communities of color. And what other way like what other health disparities do we see that uh, existed at such a higher rate prior to this pandemic that are affecting these same communities? Well, two of the things I think of off the top of my head are um, mortality from upper respiratory, either infections or um, COPD, respiratory conditions, and cardiovascular disease. So, I mean, COVID-19, we talk about it like it's purely a respiratory condition, but it's actually a vascular condition. It's actually a virus that actually attacks the integrity of your vessels. And so when you have a population of people who already were more susceptible to cardiovascular disease and then also more likely to die of cardiovascular um, disease, you honestly, you have, um, yeah, you have a really bad recipe there. So the thing is that 
you had patients or black patients who were more likely to end up with asthma exacerbations end up in the ED for those. You had patients or um, black patients who are more likely to end up in the emergency room due to exacerbation of CHF, stroke, um, transient ischemic events, and other things connected to having poor cardiovascular health. And so when you have a disease like this that ravages not only your respiratory system, but your cardiovascular system, you have less cushion. And then another thing is that even when you're talking about the resources that are being allocated to responding to the pandemic. So I think we think of hospitals as purely equitable institutions where everybody has the same amount of resources. We all have the same amount of ventilators. We all have the same access to PPE, but that's actually not true. When you're talking about hospitals in lower income communities, they do have less ventilators. They do have less PPE. Even with the most recent rollout of the vaccine, there are some hospitals that were dispersed less doses of the vaccine, depending on different financial relationships and connections they had with mm-hmm. Pfizer, Mordana, and different um, healthcare infrastructure entities. So um, I would say those are some of the pre-existing, th- those are things that existed before COVID-19, like the access to healthcare resources, like I just mentioned, um, the cardiovascular mortality being higher in Black patients. um, Black patients being more likely to end up in the ED with asthma exacerbations and untreated COPD. Mm. Those are just a few of the things I think that existed before COVID-19 or that I think that but did exist before COVID-19 that COVID-19 would worsen or exacerbate for those populations. That makes sense. Um, And and, uh, kind of building off that, Erin, I'd be curious, could you talk a little bit about the like the idea of food deserts and some of these concepts that um, are that are putting these communities in these positions where they're already at higher health risks for um, type of different type of diseases and stuff? Is that in my food deserts and that type of stuff? I'm not really an expert in this, so. I think a lot of people um, don't give like our environment proper awareness. Um, I was listening to something the other day and, and this healthcare professional said um, that your postal code actually has um, a lot more impact on your health and well-being than your own genetic code. So like your DNA and your genes and things like that. Mm-hmm. So um, I think there has to be a lot more attention given to the environment that we grew up in. I mean, like Adrian was saying how um, communities of color are, you know, have more like chronic respiratory illnesses and more um, like cardiovascular diseases. And that's that has a lot to do with the environment that we grew up in. You know, if you have a lot more pollution in your area than someone else, then that makes you more susceptible to develop um, like respiratory illnesses or cardiovascular diseases, you know, and food deserts, I feel like also um, goes into like the cardiovascular element too, because when you don't have access to like nutritious, healthy foods, then what are you going to resort to? You're going to resort to what's available, which is usually like fast food and a lot of like um, overly processed foods. And those have like, are like high in sodium, high in fat, high in cholesterol, all of that does a lot of damage to um, your cardiovascular system. So. Wow, that's, that's really interesting what you said about that idea of your, you know, postal code has maybe more of an effect than your genetics um, and some of these issues. So, um, well, kind of leading, leading. I actually want to touch on what Erin said about that. Because yeah. I know like in our most recent episode, we talk a little bit up at the beginning of the episode about like your zip code affecting your health, right? And so one thing that has come up in studies or in literature is that you're finding these places who, if they had the highest density 
of slaves or the slave population during the period of time before emancipation. They're a place that has also apparently had the slowest gains in cardiovascular um, cardiovascular health for, bo for both poor white people and for communities of color in that area. And that's for like a whole slew of policy reasons, but it just again ties into that idea of we live in a country where healthcare parity has not been prioritized adequately. And so we have this really poor healthcare infrastructure, yes, but then a very poor public health literacy as far as making sure that everyone is having access to care. Yeah, so um, on past episodes, I've talked with um, some individuals about Race, systemic racism within our criminal justice system. We talked about it within the education system, but medical racism is a real thing as well. Do you think that's something that's, do you guys think that that's, do you all think that's overlooked in America today? Um, I don't know if I would say that it's over, I don't think it's overlooked. Um, I think that it's, it's discussed a lot, um, like by the general public, obviously, and I think also in the media as well. I mean, um, I don't know how many articles I've seen talking about, you know, healthcare disparities and medical racism and discrimination. And, um, you know, that's all great. But I think that, you know, between that social commentary and the actual healthcare system, there's some kind of disconnect between that. Um, and um, I think one of them could be um, just like the lack of research that there is. Um, I had the opportunity to complete like an honors thesis. And um, I kind of found that although there was like a lot of social commentary on like medical racism and discrimination, there wasn't a lot in like research in like scholarly research in literature. And I feel like that's what healthcare professionals are actually looking at. That's what they use to like justify and rationalize these like systemic changes that you know can be the difference between life and death for certain populations. Um, so I think that I think that's one of our pain points, at least for you know the U.S. healthcare system, is that we need more research um, with Black people, like as participants, as subjects, um, and we need more Black researchers as well. Right. Um, and one thing, like specifically relating to COVID nineteen is that um, like for the vaccine trials, you know, there's not a lot of black people entering themselves to go through the trial. So we don't really know how it's going to affect our particular um, population, like in all of the other um, things like illnesses and diseases that our population um, has. So, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of goes back into like this endless cycle of like there's not enough research and then there's like not enough support for our community in healthcare. Um, and then that like kind of feeds into like the mistrust, right? That we see um, one thing more recently we're seeing is like vaccine hesitancy um, in the black community where people are just very doubtful. Um, they have a very, very deep concerns about like the efficacy and the validity of the vaccines um, that we have available currently. Right. And so, yeah, it's yeah. it's a very deeply rooted issue. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll touch more on that. And Adrian, I want to ask you a specific question. Um, just assuming that these individuals, like our audience watching, has no real understanding, because I'm, I'm sure you guys are a little bit more educated on what medical racism looks like. Um, but Adrian, like I've heard about um, statistics that say, like, for example, black women are in childbirth die at a much higher rate. 
So what does medical racism look like in our country, specifically affecting, um, you know, black, the black community? What's it look like? I'm really glad that you asked that because like Aaron pointed out, I think there's this really huge disconnect kind of sort of between what the public discourse is on medical racism and actually like what medical racism looks like when it's being enacted in real time. So it's like you have a couple of different layers here. You have medical racism that's being enacted specifically against patients. And then you have like medical racism that's also being enacted against like providers within that system. So if I could talk about how that looks when you're talking about black patients, for instance, um, even on my rotations, there is this tendency to not take black patients at their word. Um, it is not as overt as every time a black patient says something, people say that person is lying. It's not always that overt. I think a lot of providers, they don't think of themselves as racist. They don't think of themselves as prejudiced. They are, they think of themselves as objective healthcare providers. And yet, and still you will have research showing that black people are less likely to seek pain medication than white patients who come into the ED. But then in the actual hospital, you'll have that, Black patients are less likely to receive pain medication, even if the problem that they're coming for, they're coming to the ED for, are coming um, and seeking care for, is actually an indication for pain medication. Um, another thing that I've seen a lot, and um, as far as Black patients not being trusted, there is this tendency with patients who suffer from chronic pain conditions. So when you're talking about patients with sickle cell disease, talking about patients with autoimmune disease, that is one of the indications for chronic pain management. They receive high doses of pain medication and it's just a fact of their life, honestly, because they live with chronic perpetual pain that they don't necessarily, they don't choose. It, it just is what it is. And yet, and still, if you have one of these patients come into the ED or come on to be admitted into an inpatient service with a pain crisis, people are doubting their regimens. People are doubting their diagnoses. Like I see this a lot with autoimmune disease and not just black women, but just women, period. People have a tendency to doubt their diagnosis when they come. So I would say that's one way that I have seen medical racism enacted that I think providers, they're aware of the discourse. Um, I've had these conversations with residents and attendings where, you know, they can talk like politically correctly about these issues, but they're still not enacting the lessons that the, they're still not enacting. They are still not applying the information that the data is showing them about how we're treating these patients. Right. Um, that's, that's, I would say is like, I, I could probably go down this rabbit hole for days, but that would probably be the most <laughs> example I can think of. And then when you're talking about providers, I know one of the reasons that me and Martha started podcasting is, is because we wanted to bring that perspective of how providers are facing medical racism, how medical racism is affecting providers. So you have medical students like Martha and I in these scenarios where we have to watch someone doubting a chronic pain patient as someone who's just pain medication seeking or like looking at them as someone who has like an addiction or some sort of psychological affliction when they have a very, very specific condition that they need pain management for and you're doubting their word you're doubting their symptoms um that does take its own toll on you it's it's depressing it's um it's a little bit disheartening because you buy into a lot of the you know the hype the the messaging about healthcare that says that we're all there to do our best for patients 
and we're all objective and we see each patient as an individual and we're not judging them. And yet, and still, when you see patients coming from certain social, from social backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, you see that they are in fact being treated differently than patients from other cultural backgrounds. Right. And I think, and I think, yeah. I guess that's um, probably reflected across all these types of institutional racism is because a lot of it's objective and um, continues to oppress people of color, but it's like, oh, well, we didn't necessarily, we didn't realize that we were doing this at a much lower rate or, you know, kind of ignoring some of the real facts that are right in front of people's faces. Um, yeah. yeah, it's very insidious. Like even, I don't know if you guys, um, the story that was reported most recently about that, um, that female doctor who was a COVID-19 patient and she's you know, um, recording these videos on social media talking about how she's being treated. And one of the things that was in the hospital, sta um, the hospital statement once that story broke was, well, you know, the nurses were intimidated by her. And right. so from their perspective, they're a health system that is committed to anti-racism and diversity and equity and delivering care, but they haven't mastered the most basic racism, anti-racism one-on-one lesson, which is not looking at black patients as intimidating just because they come in the ed and they're sure about what they need like right. you know what i mean um and it like parallels a lot of the discourse that we're having about you know young black people in these communities who are being actually judicially executed by police and by the state because they're intimidated by them right yeah similar similar theme across the line um so let's dive back in a little bit to specifically covid um and although it's late in the process um, what what can be done at a national level and a community level just to aid these communities that are being more um, more dramatically affected by the virus? Yeah, I think um, one thing for me um, that I've learned based on my you know experiences is that education and like access to information is so so important. Um, you know, health literacy, like knowing what's going on. Um, knowing uh, what kinds of sources that we can trust. I know, you know, during this time, we've seen like a lot of videos going viral about the vaccine and and some of them are just, you know, like one case scenarios, like this one thing happened to this one person, but then, you know, sometimes it's taken out of context or it's manipulated or it's sensationalized by someone or, you know, by a certain like, news media organization and then it gets spread to millions of people and now you're spreading all of this doubt and mistrust um in the public about this one incident right, right that happened to this one individual that has their own genetic code their own dna their own pre-existing conditions and then you take that and say oh that's going to happen to me too which is you know really honestly it's not the case it's a possibility of course but um, it's not like a direct relationship. Um, so I think that education and information um, is, is very, very important during this time, especially in the time of social media where, you know, anyone can get on the internet, anyone can get on Instagram and say pretty much anything. You know, it's very important to just do your own research, you know, um, be self-empowered um, about, you know, what's in the vaccines. Um, how are they being administered? What are, what are the different kinds of vaccines that are currently available? Um, right. right now, we only have like two vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna, but you know there are several others that are still in development that might get approved by the FDA um, for distribution. So maybe looking into that. Um, you know, I do my best, like on my 
platforms to just empower my followers to really do their own research um, because anything can be made to look official these days. Anything can be um, manipulated as if it's true, as if it's accurate information. And that's definitely not always the case. Right. It's unfortunate that we live in a time with so much misinformation. I mean, um, you know, this whole thing about, for example, the presidential election is and being fraudulent. Right. That's that goes to that same point of um, misinformation. And it's like now there's so much out there that people don't even know what's real and what's not. And I think um, it's, it's very dangerous for sure. Um, but Adrian, did you want to touch on that a little bit about what could be done at the national level and community level to uh, to help with this, this virus? Yeah, I wanted to piggyback off of what you just said. And if I could speak my mind on this podcast, I would say that everyone thinks that because they have access to the same information now, they are an expert. And this is not something that just right. the Black community. This is something that just is an American problem, is that people think that because we all have the same access to Google, we all have the same access to WebMD, we all have the same knowledge base, for instance, of an actual MD, an actual nurse, an actual respiratory technician or therapist, an ICU North nurse. And that's not the case. It's these people, these are your healthcare experts. And it's not that you are not supposed to assert a level of agency as someone who is, a, who is a patient or someone who is coming and seeking healthcare. But the idea is also that like, if these are your healthcare experts, listen to their expertise, believe them. So do your own research, absolutely do your own research and get comfortable and then come to your healthcare um, experts with questions and believe, believe their answers. If, they're, if, they're, if this is someone who you have rapport with and someone who you can trust with your healthcare, and I think that's, what the, um, that's where race comes into this a little bit when you're talking about Black patients, needing to see sometimes another Black face or hear something from another Black face to go like, listen, like right. I now take this a little bit more seriously because I know that you're not trying to jerk me around like maybe a non-Black um, non or a non-person of color might be in the healthcare system. Take your questions to them, get your questions answered. But, yeah. you know, a, basically actually like validate their expertise, believe them when they say things. And I, I see a lot. It's interesting because, you know, um, you're a young black person or a young person of color, you enter the healthcare system and then, you know, your family, they want you, your family, you're supposed to be kind of like an ambassador between the healthcare system and all of your loved ones who are not in the healthcare system. And so some of them, I think, will reference those credentials and bring questions to you. But some of them, um, this is me anecdotally speaking now, you know, I have friends and I have friends and then even myself where people just want to challenge that expertise just because they found a video on the internet and they want to imply that, you know, you're a tool in a machine, basically, or a cog in a machine. Yeah. And that's not the case. It's like Black providers still have their own sense of agency and you don't want to harm this community um, right. we want the community better i guess also to directly answer your question i think one thing or another thing that could be done besides according healthcare providers their level of expertise and referencing that level of expertise i think another thing that could actually be done is i don't see so correct me if i'm wrong but i do not see or i have yet to see a targeted plan for how minority communities are going to be reached with vaccination are going to be vaccinated i think that we're in this really weird limbo right now where we don't have effective leadership in the white house and so the vaccine in general is not getting rolled out to the wider community as expeditiously as it could possibly be but i know that one thing that i've seen in my research um in my research for 
my own podcast and by looking into a lot of this history is that when institutions and when our society want to deliver a healthcare product or any product to the Black community, they are very effective at doing so. And so it is very hard for me to believe that you cannot get Black people vaccinated just because they don't trust the healthcare system. Because there have been other points in history where that distrust has been very, very, very prevalent or that distrust has been, because that, that distrust is earned, that distrust has been present. And you have managed to get things like Black people, um, you know, get Black people on birth control. You have managed things like get Black people to buy certain products from certain entities. And so I just, I will not buy that. There should not be a concerted effort to make sure that Black communities are getting vaccinated and that there should be an actual rigorous health, public health campaign to get over the, um, to get over the obstacle of that perceived distrust or that earned distrust from um, the Black community as far as getting vaccinated. Right. I would say, I would say a lot of that um, just comes with our leadership right now. Obviously, there's, there's some issues with our leadership in this country at the moment. Um, and so you, you guys both touched a little bit on the, the lack of trust that there is um, in the black community for this vaccine. But what, for, for our listeners that aren't aware of this, why, and that might be like, well, why, why, why don't they trust the vaccine? Could you guys touch on a little bit about the history of um, like black people with uh, dealing with the medical, like issues within the medical field, why black people might not have trust in the vaccine? There's a lot. So I think everyone likes to yeah. mention Tuskegee. Like everyone always just says Tuskegee and then just leaves it there without necessarily mm -hmm. going into the details of that. I know, um, so I went to a predominantly Black school and when I was in maybe third or fourth grade, we watched a movie made about the Tuskegee Project. And that's when I first became aware that you had this cohort of men who were basically being experimented on to find therapies or treatment actually no so the whole entire experiment right is to essentially see the course of syphilis and so they're saying that they're treating these black patients and they're not treating them for decades and most of the people in this project die and they did not give them the full i want to say they did not give them the full respect of an actual patient but we talk about tuskegee and tuskegee is not even the only thing like even if we can go as recently as like the 1990s and 2000 Hopkins has an entity attached to it called the Klein Krieger Institute. And that's an institute that was essentially um, putting, put together a research project where they were having black children place, placed in homes with lead paint and then following them to see the effects of lead on their cognition and their nervous system. And they did not make their parents aware. They did not make the black people aware. And this lawsuit is a lawsuit that as of my last recollection, has still not been concluded into like the 2000s, like currently has not been concluded. Um, and I guess if you, wanted, if you wanted to know more about that, Harry A. Washington has another book. So she has medical apartheid, but then she has another book called um, A Terrible Thing to Waste that is essentially about the assault of chemicals on our cognition. But that Baltimore story about the children in the lead paint, that was something I learned when I went to graduate school at Hopkins. So I just so happened to be doing a little bit of research about the school's relationship with the community. And I found this story about the lead poisoning. And that was something that when it actually, so when it first came to court, they said that it wasn't necessarily the researcher's job to give parents that information in that project. And then they ended up having to appeal this case. And that's why it's still something that is ongoing. That's how people see black people as fodder for research and as people who 
you can assault their kids with chemicals and with all sorts of agents and with your own research agenda, but you don't necessarily have to give them any sort of restitution. They're just there as fodder for your lab, essentially. And that's something that is reflective of a deeper issue as far as the patient provider relationship between black patients and the healthcare system. It's not a relationship that has ever been reverenced or given the same value when a black patient is on the other end of, or in the patient portion or patient role of that dynamic. Um, so it's, it's Tuskegee, but there's a lot, and that's like the, the biggest, most recent thing I can think of off the top of my head. There's other things all of the time. Like even I think earlier you asked, what's an example of medical racism, black patients having hospital security called on them for minor infractions in the hospital. There's all sorts of little things that tell black people that you do not have the same you do not have the right to access the same care as someone who doesn't look like you. And Black people, even when they don't know the particulars of that history, they not only are we a culture, are we a group of people that puts a lot of stock in oral histories, we, we intuit that in our interactions with providers. We intuit that in our interactions with institutions. So it's not a boogeyman in the closet when we talk about Black people having a distrust of the medical system. It's a distrust that has been earned and continually doubled down on. And I would say the medical system to this day has not really done what it needs to do or made a concerted effort to actually engender trust between patients of color, including black patients and the medical system. Right. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree. And um, that research with the children being put in homes, with I had never heard about that. So that was that really shocked me. Um, one other example that of like medical racism that I know of is with like um, the father of gynecology. I can't remember his name, but he's Mary- called like the father of gynecology. Huh? Yeah. Marion Sims. Yes. And um, basically what he would do is like experiment um, on like black women, black slave women, um, without any kind of anesthesia, no kind of pain relief, no numbing, nothing. Um, and he was used to work with like medical assistants or whatever, but at some point the medical assistants were like, we can't do this anymore, we're leaving, we're out. And then he would have other slave women come in and hold the woman down so that he could continue like mm-hmm. his experiments and his research and things like that. Um, So that's just one example um, that I thought of while Adrian was speaking. But I mean, as she was saying, I mean, there are plenty of those types of stories. Um, And and not only do we have like those stories where something did something super atrocious um, or like it affected like an entire group of people. We also have like our own experiences today. We also have the experiences that we hear um, from our family members, from our friends. Um, and so that just all of that compounded, like Adrian said, you know, it's a distrust that has been earned time and time again. Right. Yeah. No, it's I mean, it's obviously is um, with great reason that there's a lot of distrust and um, you guys have given examples in history, but then also just in our day to day lives, it still happens. Um, so I think it's just looking at it is like kind of the idea that a lot of our listeners that are choosing to educate themselves on these things are completely unaware of these realities because they haven't had to experience them, you know? And so um, while it's, it makes sense for a lot of folks like you, um, both, the, both of you that are in the medical field, a lot of these people are so unaware of it. And that's kind of a common theme and about um, kind of working towards a more 
united country and a little bit more understanding is accepting the fact that a lot of individuals might be on the right side of the fight, but don't necessarily have access to these perspectives and to these stories and just to the realities that people of color have been facing throughout um, the history of our country. And so, you know, I think it's, it's important that we continue to try to shed light on, on uh, what exists today. And I think, Adrian, you're doing a great job of that in your, in your podcast. And so, um, you know, if our, if our listeners want to learn more about just um, these type of stories within, what, what exactly, take, uh, take, a, take a second to talk about your podcast a little bit more um, for our listeners. Okay, so podcast is a medical history in color, and you can find it at linked on my personal page, but on Apple and Spotify. And essentially, it is a podcast where we explore the history of met- Black people's relationship with the healthcare system. Um, it is purely a podcast about Black people's relationship with the healthcare system. So I'm not going to tell you that you can come there and you'll find out about Asian people's history with the healthcare system, Native Americans. It is purely a podcast for Black people by Black women. Um, and I don't want to say it's just for Black people, but it's a podcast to educate people about some of these topics in healthcare. Because even within the medical system and, me- and medical education, we don't talk about these histories at all. We don't we pay a passing tribute to some of the men who came up with things like vaccination, um, who came up with different technologies of medicine. None of those people are ever black and none of those people are ever women. And so there's this whole untold history that me and Martha thought was really important to access and disseminate in the form of the podcast. And so that's what you will find there. As of now, we are at five episodes and we're getting ready to release a sixth episode and um yeah i would say just give it a listen it's a story or it's a series of stories that are told not in entirely chronological order but just accordant with different topics um right. as they become like relevant or on our modern day on the modern things that we're doing yeah i got the chance to listen to a little bit i'll definitely be be um staying tuned for episode six so well thank you guys thank you guys both for being here and thank you for you guys are both very educated like i mentioned at the beginning of this episode but I think you guys are um, doing great work and both using your platform to to uh, raise awareness to these issues. So thank you guys both for taking the time to um, to join me today in this conversation. And um, also thank you to our audience as well for, for tuning in. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, yeah thank you. This was great. Okay. Yeah. Oh, no problem. I mean, it was um, very informative and um, I'm just happy to have you guys here. So hold on, let me say my proper outro because I kind of, uh, out. Um, but then I'll, I'm not going to hang it up right after I finish the conversation. Touch base. Um, but yeah, thank you to our audience for joining in to episode 14 of Speak Your Mind. Cool. All right. I'm gonna-